Okay, I'm pretty sure this time I'm up here for good until the end, so, um, and I won't pray again because I've just prayed for the opening of the sermon, so forgive me for the breaking of the order, but um, <clears throat> this is uh, sort of extracted to try to give you sort of a, a bit of encouragement this morning. I actually sort of blended uh, two sermons together. I've actually, I'm doing a, a series at the moment in my church. Uh, into both the, the uh, Epistle of James and into the Gospel of Mark. So I do a bit of a rotation between Fridays and Sundays so that you know, sort of people get a bit of a flavour of two things. And this is an extract into uh, <clears throat> the series that I'll start into the Gospel of Mark. And I want to do a couple of things to look together and explore, give you an introduction into the Gospel of Mark and really explore who Mark was. Um, you know, when we look at the Gospel writers, you know, we know, you know Matthew and John, they were the disciples. We know Luke, you know, Luke was a, as a doctor that basically followed Jesus around and followed Peter and followed Paul. But who was Mark? And yet he's, he's basically authored, is, is, you know, essentially his name goes down in history as one of the authors of the four Gospels. Um, and so I want to try and explore that together because I think the, the context and understanding who he was and how God worked in his life uh, really sets the stage once you, you know, come to read the, 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 the Gospel of Mark together. So... <clears throat> When we look at the Gospel of Mark and consider the four Gospels, you know, you go through sort of church tradition and church history and, and you pick up a passage in Revelations 4-7 and the church historically sort of looked at Revelations 4-7, I'm not going to exposit it for time's sake, but it's basically a, a passage that talks about the cherubim that surround the, the throne of God. And, uh, and the four faces they have, it talks about the face of a lion, the face of a calf, the face of a man and the face of an eagle. And historically the churches have basically ascribed those four faces to each of the Gospels. Um, you know, if you go through, so for example, through Europe and you look at, you know, you do, so, or through Turkey and whatnot, you see throughout sort of the chapels, there's different sort of, you know, those, those animals ascribed and sort of, you know, you know, you know, portraits of them everywhere and you think, well, what's going on? Are we like into pagan worship or something? But they're actually meant to reflect the full gospels of, of you know, the gospel of Christ. And the, the animal that's basically ascribed to the gospel of Mark is the, the ox or the calf. And the reason for that is Mark portrays Jesus Christ as very much the working servant. You know, the ox or the calf in ancient days was basically an animal of labour, an animal of work. And so it pictures Christ that way. And so it's, it's usually ascribed and, and gives this picture of the servant God, the workman of God. You know, Jesus, you know, was, was, you know, if you look through the Gospel of Mark, it's quite a busy book. You know, it's, it's a book that's full of action. It's, it's, if you were watching, for example, a movie, it's just full of cutscenes. You know, literally, in, in fact, the word immediately is used over 40 times in the, book, in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, it's, a, it's a shortest gospel, but yet it's full of action, it's full of deeds. You see in one chapter you go from one scene that immediately says he goes to another, then immediately he goes to something else, and it's constantly cutting from one activity to another. You see, you see constantly Christ busy at work, engaging in the service of being the Messiah. And the Gospel of Mark is very much focused on deeds more so than the words of Jesus Christ. It's very much an action-packed book. And, and according to church history, it's very much ascribed, you know, it's, it's, it's authorship, even though it was penned by Mark, its authorship is ascribed to that of Peter, Peter the Apostle, according to church history and custom. We'll explore that in just a second. But the fact is, even though Peter may have sort of, you know, dictated the content and whatnot, it was Mark that authored the book. It was Mark, Mark that authored this gospel. And so... It's important that we understand and have some knowledge as to who Mark was and is. And so when we look through the New Testament, there's, there's a couple of references that we pick up into who Mark was. And the first reference that we pick up of Mark coming onto the scene is in Acts chapter 12. 
And to give you some context here, this is you know, the prison of Peter. So Peter gets imprisoned by Herod and, and he's basically surrounded by you know, a group of, of, of soldiers, you know, essentially, so he doesn't escape. He's chained and they've got soldiers literally surrounding him, like, yeah, sort of, kind of like a, a wall of people, if you like. And, and these soldiers would have four shifts, each one six hours each. So 24, 24 hours a day, Peter was surrounded by soldiers. And we know the story, right? Yeah, the, the, the early church was praying for Peter's release. The angel appears, puts the soldiers to sleep, releases the chains. And as soon as Peter's released, you know what he does? Well, Acts chapter 12, verse 12, speaking of Peter, he says, So when he had considered this, so this is when he's free, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And so the inference that you get as you read this, this, the, uh, the early part of Acts 12 is that this was a place that the early church regularly gathered. It was a place that, that Peter knew well, and Peter obviously knew John Mark well. And then later on to, into chapter 12, we see this, this young man, John Mark, who's sort of had some influence, yeah, sort of Peter's had some influence over his life. Uh, and in fact, we pick this up in First Peter 5.13 where Peter describes Mark, he says, Mark my son. He uses this sonship language of, of, of you know, sort of a paternal language that he's got between him and Mark. But then in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we then sort of transition into, you know, sort of the first half of the book of Acts is all about sort of Peter and Peter's journeys and whatnot. Then he goes into Paul's journeys. And that's just consistent with Luke having sort of you know, followed Peter for a time and now he's following Paul. And we see in that, that early part that sort of you know, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church at Antioch and Mark's on the scene here. So in Acts chapter 12 verse 25 it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and when they had fulfilled their ministry they also took with them John whose surname was Mark. <clears throat> and then we, um, we see these, this dynamic duo of Paul and Barnabas, and if you read through the early part of the book of Acts, you see the impact these two men had on the early church, yeah, and had on the, the ministry to the Gentiles, which is us, right? And then we go in, and they basically commence their ministry, and he goes into the next chapter, and in the next chapter we basically see is, is you know, they, they go out to sort of to minister to, you know, sort of the, the regions of sort of, you know, Greece and Turkey as they are today. In Acts 13, verses 6, 6 and 7, Now when they had gone, this is speaking of Paul and Barnabas with John Mark with them, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. The man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this, this, this consul, right, this, this you know, sort of a, an official of the, the Roman government, basically wants to know the gospel of Christ. He calls Paul and Barnabas and says, give me this truth, this gospel that you, you guys have been preaching everywhere and it's been impacting the, the nations. And as, they, as they, they're basically delivering the gospel to him and this, this man's engaging with the gospel, engaging with Paul, this, this sorcerer, this guy named Bar-Jesus, starts to interrupt Paul and starts to try and sort of interrupt the, 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 the gospel being delivered. And as the account goes, as we read through the, the passage, Paul turns to him and says... And just, he's frustrated at this point with this guy trying to interrupt the gospel. And, he, and in frustration, he says to him, yeah, and he, he essentially curses him. He says, you're going to be blind immediately for a season. And this guy's struck with blindness. And so we see immediately as, as these guys start ministering, this almost this spiritual warfare take place between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And it's literally manifested. 
And this is why John Mark is seeing this manifestation of this spiritual warfare of Paul and Barnabas wanting to go out to give the gospel and its resistance by this magician. And you think to yourself, wow, this is, you know, what an experience. What a way to, to be introduced to go out to give the gospel. And, and you can imagine being John Mark thinking, mate, this is, this is great. I want to keep going. This is, this is really encouraging. I can see the, the kingdom of God overpowering the kingdom of Satan and the power of the gospel and how it prevails. Instead, John Mark picks up and does the run. He's terrified by what he's seen and he goes the other way. In fact, in Acts 13, verse 13, he says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, speaking of John Mark, departed from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, interestingly enough, the, the church that ordained them to go, and as you read through the early parts of you know, Acts 12, or the halfway through Acts 12, it was the church at Antioch. And Mark doesn't go back to Antioch. Not only does he flee Paul and Barnabas, he doesn't even go back to his sending church to give an account as to why he's left. He runs back home to Jerusalem, almost in shame and terror. And this is the man that wrote the gospel. In the first sign of trouble, the first sign of resistance and conflict runs the other way. But the story doesn't end there. Two years later, Mark appears on the scene again. And obviously he's, he's done something to try to regain some sort of status somewhere. And in Mark, in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 39, we read, that after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now that Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take, the, take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So you see that yeah, Paul wants to go back. Let's go back and, and encourage the churches that we've planted over the last few years. Barnabas says, okay, I want to take my, my cousin John Mark with me. And Paul's like, hold on, yeah, once burnt, twice shy. Like, this guy's betrayed us once before. He's done the runner once before. I'm not, I'm not going to bring him along again. And being invested in someone that in the first sign of resistance, the first sign of trouble, fled. Why should I spend time and effort into ministering and discipling someone like that? And the byproduct is, in verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. So Mark is responsible for breaking up what... Consider the, the greatest dynamic duo in history. Paul and Barnabas, man, they shook the world. And because of this guy, they were now divided. It says the contention was shown so sharp, their argument, their disagreement was so sharp that they parted ways. And to give you context into the relationship that these men had, you know, Paul, who used to be Saul, was a persecutor of the church. He used to kill Christians. When he came to Christ, none of the church trusted him. None of the churches opened up their arms. Oh, we love you now. Come here and we forgive you. They were all afraid that this guy was like an undercover agent coming in to work out who they are so he can come and behead them and kill them. It was only because of Barnabas vouching for him that he was allowed into the early church, that he was ordained as a minister of the gospel. 
And so you can imagine the, the close relationship these two men had. That Paul's ministry was indebted to Barnabas. And yet they part ways over Mark. And it's this same Mark who wrote the gospel. It's not a pretty picture, is it? It's a man who failed and caused friendships and relationships to fail. But the story doesn't end there, thankfully. Sorry? Praise be, amen. So ten years later, ten years after the incident, Mark shows up again on the scene. And as we know, for those that know anything about sort of church history and Paul's journeys, <clears throat> Paul was in prison twice. In his first imprisonment, in, you know, captured by the Romans, he wrote three letters. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote the letter to the Colossians, and he wrote Philemon. And in a couple of those books, he makes mention of this guy named Mark. Watch what he says in Colossians 4.10. Colossians 4.10, he says, Writing to the church at Colossae, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Some ten years later, something had transpired so that the relationship between Paul and Mark was now restored. And not only restored, Paul was now vouching for Mark. Paul was doing for Mark what Barnabas did for him. To vouch for him for the churches. And Mark was with him. He says, and Mark greets you. And if he comes to you, welcome him. Watch what he says, and even in Philemon, he's talking about the greeting, it's talking about sort of Mark being with him. In Philemon, uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Philemon, verses 23 and 24, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow labourers. Mark became a fellow labourer of, 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 of Paul the Apostle. And you might think to yourself, well, okay, that's, that's great. So, so it took 10 years for Mark to somehow do something Miraculous, I don't know why, but to restore his relationship with Paul. That Paul now considered him a fellow, fellow labourer. But let's consider Mark's track record, right? I mean, this guy's a little bit of a like, up and down guy. Like, he's it's great one day and you know, terrified the next. And I mean, where's the consistency, right? And sure, I can see from, from the, the, those early letters that, that Paul writes that the relationship was restored. But how do we know that, that continued? How do we know that persisted? Well, <clears throat> Paul in his second imprisonment writes a couple of letters in First and Second Timothy, the last letters that he writes. And in his second imprisonment, Paul faces death. And in fact, it's where he dies. And Paul knows that he's going to die. In fact, in Second Timothy, four, chapter four, verse six, watch what he says: "I am of my, for I am ready. I am already being poured out as a drink offering." And at the time of my de- and, and, the, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul's facing death, and he knows it. He knows this is one of the last letters he's going to write. And when you get to the end of your life, yeah, you, you kind of stop and you consider your life, you consider your ministry. And Paul gave his life for the ministry. And you, you tend to want to be surrounded by those that that, that you love. And those that can continue on that ministry, right? And watch what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. Speaking to Timothy, he says, Be diligent 
Come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Watch this. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is useful to me for, for ministry. Right at the end of his life, Paul asked for no one else, but bring me Mark. He's useful for me to the ministry. Mark was not just a fellow labourer for Paul, he becomes like, almost like a crutch for Paul. That for Paul to continue his ministry in the early church, I want Mark, I need him. Bring him with you. You know, somehow his relationship with Paul was restored at the end and that restoration was maintained. And what a beautiful picture of that grace, that restoration. And you think to yourself, well, that's great, but how does Mark go from a guy who runs at the first sign of conflict to someone who is a crutch for Paul the Apostle? How do you go from this to that? Well, let me tell you, I think it was very much the influence of Peter over his life. Yeah, Peter writes and he speaks of, in 1 Peter 5.13, he says, For he, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now you remember Peter. Peter knew what it was to fail and to reject Jesus Christ. But Peter also knew what it was to be restored. And he teaches Mark that. And you see that restoration in Mark's life. And in fact, <clears throat> as we go through church history, the evidence of the fact that the Gospel of Mark was strongly influenced and almost, other than being penned, very much authored by Peter the Apostle. You know, we look at the early church and the testimony of the early church and we know from <clears throat> you know, somebody like Polycarp, who was a disciple of, uh, of, John the, of John the Apostle, rather, he had a student named <clears throat> Papias who wrote and spoke of this Gospel of Mark. He says, Mark, who was an interpreter of Peter, wrote with exactness. You've got other authors. You've got people like Justin who lived from 100 to 150 AD. In his famous dialogue with Trifo, he speaks of the memoirs of Peter being the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> he says that Mark wrote in Rome after Peter's death. You've got others in the early church, people like Arrhenius who lived in 200 AD, Origen in 230 AD, Clement in the year 300, Eusebius 362. They all say the same thing and they ascribe the Gospel of Mark to the essentially the content being delivered by Peter. In fact, Eusebius, this quote from Eusebius is quite powerful. He says this, he says, So great a light of religion shone upon the minds of the hearers of Peter that they, they were not satisfied with, with a single hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation, but with all kinds of entreaties urged Mark, whose gospel is extent, seeing that he was a follower of Peter, to leave them in writing a record of the teaching transmitted to them orally. Nor did they cease until they prevailed upon the man so they, came responsibly, sorry, so they became responsible humanly for the scripture that is called the gospel according to Mark. Yeah, and we see as we look through the gospel of Mark, Peter's influence throughout the gospel. In fact, the, the gospel of Mark contains vivid detail than none of the other, other, other gospels do. 
You, know, you, you see things like references to the green grass and flowers in Mark 6.39. You see the specificity about 2,000 hogs in Mark 5.13. You see the fact that Jesus was looking around you know, in, in, uh, in Mark 3.5 3, and 3.34. All this specificity, this exact, exactness and detail of someone like Peter who was paying attention to his surroundings and to, to Jesus Christ and what he was doing. Thank you. And we see that the fact that you know, it's, it's, it's you know, Peter who spoke Aramaic, it's actually got more Aramaic references than any, any of the other four Gospels. It uses words like Bonoges in, in, in Mark 3.17, Talithakumi in Mark 5.41, Corbin in Mark 7.1, I'm not going to try to pronounce this in Mark 7.34. You can look it up later. Um, Abba in Mark 14.36. And the, and the fact that you know, Peter's, towards the end of Peter's ministry, where Peter died, he was serving the church in Rome. And we see this gospel is very much written to a Roman audience. In fact, he uses more Latin words than anyone, any, any, other, any, any of the other writers, the gospel writers. And words like, you know, Centurio in Mark 15.39, Quadrans in Mark 12.42, Praetorium in Mark 15.16, other words like Spectacular, Sexterius, and so on. And in fact, as you consider the gospel of Mark, it's unique in that it's the only gospel that contains no genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew and Luke give us a genealogy. John gives us a genealogy as far as his heavenly, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. He tells us where he was in the beginning, right? But Mark doesn't do any of that. You know why? Because he's writing to a Roman audience that, that are, you know, and, and you've got to consider the Romans. The Romans are all about what you do. They want to see your, your work and your activity. They don't care about your genealogy. And if you're trying to picture a servant king, no one cares about the genealogy of a servant, Right? And the truth is, and this statistic actually surprised me, the Gospel of Mark is actually the most translated Gospel historically. And the reason for that is, <clears throat> one is practically because it's the shortest Gospel, so it's less work effort, right? But, but more practically, because it was written to a Roman audience, it doesn't require an understanding of Jewish customs as you approach the Gospel. But as we look at all these things, we see this, this influence that Peter had over Mark's life. We see the practical influence that Peter had over Mark's life, of how he, he turned from being a man that fled from the first sign of conflict, was terrified of sharing the gospel, to becoming a crutch of Paul the Apostle. And it gives this beautiful illustration, understanding who Mark is and the journey of his life, into what the gospel is. You see, when we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think, okay, you know, deliver the message, you know, give people sort of a five-minute prayer, repeat after me, that quick salvation kind of sort of, you know, you know, adage that kind of goes along today. And it's all about salvation, right? It's not. That's part of it. Yes, the gospel gives us grace to save. And imagine with me, as you get saved, you get this, this box, this gift of salvation, right? You reach into the box and you draw salvation out of it. But you see, the gospel and grace mean so much more than that. You know, we're called as Christians, as we're meant to be sanctified, to be changed into the image of Christ. We're called to reach into that same box and to draw sanctification, to draw encouragement, to draw what we need to take on each and every day. You look at every one of the New Testament epistles, every writer from Peter to James to Paul, they all write, they say, grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
They're writing to a Christian audience. What do you mean grace? They're already saved. See, grace isn't, you don't just need grace for salvation. We need grace for sanctification. We need grace upon grace. Paul Peter writes, he says, we're to grow in grace. That's what it means to grow in the grace of Christ. The gospel of Christ, friends, is so much more than just salvation to the lost. The grace of Christ is understanding who he is to live in Christ, to be changed into the image of Christ each and every day. I don't know how long you guys go for, but I've got another 20 minutes. Is that okay? Or do you want to pause there? I'm good? Okay. I'll get some head nods? Okay. And just to prove the point, to prove the point that as Mark talks and opens up this gospel message, let's give you some exposition, right? I'll give you some great context and you know, sort of uh, you know, scriptures from all over the place, but I'm an expository preacher. I like to exposit the word. So let's look at some expository preaching and look at the actual the gospel of Mark to prove the point because he starts off, the very first verse of the gospel of Mark, he begins and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't start with he begot this, begot that, just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, the, we know what the word gospel means, right? We use it all the time. It means good news. But you've got to consider that the, the gospel of Mark was written to a Roman audience. And the Romans would have understood what this good news meant. What, what, Paul was, sorry, what Mark was proclaiming in his first verse, the opening verse of his gospel. You see, <clears throat> when we look at this concept of you know, sort of an evangel or good news, it was very much sort of a, a proclamation of joyful tidings that was gi- given in association with a king. In fact, when we go back through Roman history <clears throat> and we look at the word you know, gospel and the way it was understood, the gospel and the way it was understood by the Romans, you know, it, it basically meant joyful tidings. It was actually used very much by the Romans in, in the context of their, their cultish sect. And when I say they called you sect, the Romans back then used to worship their emperor as God. And we see some of these, uh, these reports, these evangels that were sent, sent forward at the time. In fact, we've got a record of one um, in, uh, in 9 BC, uh, found in Asia Minor about Octavian Augustus, right? This is his evangel, his gospel, right? It begins and it says, The birthday of the God was, the beginning, was, the, was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings which have been remark- remarkably proclaimed on this account. You, almost, you look at that inscription and it's remarkably similar to the way Mark opens up his gospel. Because he's writing to a Roman audience and he's giving him a gospel, an evangel, a proclamation of who this king, this Messiah is of Jesus Christ. And he gives him this context of a historical event that introduces a new situation in the world, which is what an evangel, a gospel was to the Romans. But then, he does something strange, and I wish I had time to exposit all verses 1 to 8. Of, of, you know, we'd probably be here for another hour, and I'd never get invited back again, and Ted would probably shoot me. But I'm going to quickly go through it, right, just for time's sake. Then, immediately, Mark goes into John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in to prepare the way and he was baptizing in baptism of repentance. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching in baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all were baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So hold on. 
It's a bit confusing, right? Because Mark here opens up and says, I'm going to give you this evangel. I'm going to give you this great news of this proclamation of Jesus Christ and who he is. And then he goes into John the Baptist. You're missing something here, Mark. What's going on? Well, it begins the passage by, by essentially showing this John the Baptist as a fulfillment of prophecy, right? It refers to you know, Old, Old Testament you know, text and basically Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, chapter 3, and he says that you know, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of prophecy. But he sets the scene here. He sets the scene here for the baptism of Jesus Christ, which we find in verses 9 to 11. He says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptizing by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now to give you some context here, right? So um, according to yeah, theologians and historians, John the Baptist would have been in, in, in and around sort of, yeah, the, the Jordan River for about six months before Jesus came to him to be baptized. And he was there for another six months before he was imprisoned by Herod. And he gets, yeah, and basically for those that want to know sort of, yeah, a little bit of church history, he gets imprisoned by Herod, yeah, he's in prison for a year and then he gets beheaded, yeah, we know the story of John the Baptist, so. Um, <clears throat> but he's there for about six months preaching this baptism of repentance, right, crying out to the audience of people from all around Judea coming to him to be, to be baptised by him. And then there's this account of somehow it refers to, to Jesus coming forward to be baptised by John. Now this is important because, yeah, as you read through the Gospels, it's the only recorded account of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ actually meeting. There's a lot of interactions of their, their disciples and the disciples sending messages to Christ and Christ responding and whatnot. But it's the only recorded time in the Gospels you've got of these two men meeting each other. <clears throat> and somehow this is tied to the very Gospel of Jesus Christ to this evangel, this proclamation of his kingship. You see, <clears throat> excuse me, let me try this water out. So. <clears throat> you see, it's important to, as we consider how this ties into evangel, we've got to answer another question of, why was Jesus baptised? And what did the baptism mean? I mean, you know, we know that John the Baptist was baptising a baptism of repentance. What did Jesus need to repent of? I mean, he's the sinless servant, right? The sinless lamb of God. Why, why is he there to be baptised? What's, what's going on? What's, what's happening in this scene? How does this tie into this gospel, this evangel that, that you know, Mark's talking about? We're going to do with a couple of questions here, right? <clears throat> now, and this was actually a question that came up in the early church. And the, Gnostic, the, the, the Gnostics are basically sort of tried to deal with this in, in and through the Gnostic Gospels. And we've got, for example, an extract from the, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, which is you know, one of the Gnostic Gospels. And he basically says, he says, Behold the mother of the Lord and his brethren said to him, John the Baptist baptizes for the remission of sins. Let's go and be baptized by him. So basically trying to say well, he was baptized because his mother made him so. You know, she basically told him and commanded him and that's why he did it. Right? Well, that's not true. Scripture doesn't tell us that. And another one basically says that, <clears throat> uh, but he said to them, and this is the response apparently from Christ, he said to them, what sin have I committed that I should go and be baptised by him? Except perchance that this very thing that I have said is ignorance. So, so we have this, this Jesus basically saying, I don't know any sin, but maybe the fact that I don't know sin is somehow sinful? 
So you've got this, this Jesus Christ who has a limited understanding of who he, who he is, trying to work himself out. <clears throat> and some would argue, and some of the Gnostics basically tried to argue back then that Jesus was basically purely a man and he only became divine after his baptism. And the problem with that is, well, then how do you explain basically you know, the, the angel saying you know, from his birth that you're calling him Emmanuel, God is with us. You know, how, does, how do you become God with us from that, that point of birth? So there's issues with that. But just to clarify some things and, and any sort of misconceptions, so I don't want to leave you with any. Jesus was sinless. And in fact, we know that, that it wasn't because of sin or any kind of repentance that he needed to be baptised by John the Baptist. And in fact, John confirms this for us in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and are you coming to me? He recognises that this guy's a sinless saviour. He doesn't need to repent of anything. And this is in contrast with John in verse 7 of, of, of Matthew chapter 3 where you know, sort of the, the, as the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him and watch our response to them, he says, And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his, to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And this guy, John the Baptist, wasn't afraid to call out anyone for their sin. In fact, he calls out the, 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 the religious leaders of the day and he says, and he calls them vipers, snakes. In front of the whole audience. But to Jesus Christ, he says, who are you to, be, to come and be baptised? I need to be baptised by you. I, know, I need repentance from you, not the other way around. <clears throat> and he refuses Jesus in this, this you know, or tries to rather refuse Jesus' baptism. And it's actually, it's, the, the fact that there's this exchange between John and, and, uh, and, and Jesus actually affirms that in the, at least in the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he was without sin. That even John the Baptist recognises that. And so it, it still comes back to this question, why did Jesus need to be, be, be baptised? Why was he baptised by John the Baptist? Well, I'll put to you as out of obedience. And in fact, Jesus confirms this in Matthew 3.15. In the very next verse, his response to John the Baptist, and when John the Baptist tries to refuse him any kind of baptism, he says, but Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so, sorry, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So Jesus says to, to John, he says, Look, I've got to get baptised for you to fulfil all righteousness. So somehow this baptism had to do with the fulfilment of all righteousness, which is what? What fulfilled all righteousness? What allows us to stand righteous before Jesus Christ? The death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So somehow this baptism was died, tied to this gospel message that we know today, this, this salvific message of Jesus Christ, the remittance of sins. Because to be righteous is to stand right before God. And that's only done through the work that Christ did on the cross. And in fact, you know, I won't go into this, but John recognises this in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, verses 29 to 31. But in verse 31, <clears throat> John the Baptist says two things that I want us to pick up. He says, I did not know him, speaking of Jesus Christ, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptising with water. <clears throat> And verse 29, it says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's two things happening in this baptism. So John the Baptist, Baptist recognises that Jesus Christ represents the taking of the sin of the world. It's somehow allowing us to stand righteous before Jesus Christ. But there's something else happening. He says that he should be revealed to Israel. That somehow this baptism is his revelation to Israel. In fact, after the baptism was the beginning of his ministry, right? 
So let's look at both these things. The first one is we see somehow that this obedience, this you know, allowing all to fulfill us, to fulfill all righteousness, this baptism is somehow tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know this through passages like you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Philippians 3, 8 and 9. But just to cut things short, because I think I'm going way over here and, and I want to be invited back at some point. <laughs> we see that Jesus in Mark chapter 10, in the early parts of Mark chapter 10, he starts espousing to his disciples about all the things that he must suffer at the cross. Right? And then, and then after that, he basically is, is going along with his disciples. And then, you know, the two sons of thunder, you know, uh, James and John, come up to him and say, "Listen, yeah, you know, we know that you've got this kingdom. Yeah, you know, we want we want positions of power. Can you let us sit on the right hand and on the left when, in your kingdom?" And watch our response to them in Mark ten thirty seven. And they said to him, "Grant us that we should that we may sit one on your right hand and one on the left in your glory." This is right after he's told them about his death and burial and resurrection. And verse 38, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? See, Jesus ties his death, burial and resurrection to baptism, which is what we do today, right? Baptism is a representation of what? Of the... Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as you go in and out of the water, right? So Jesus ties in this gospel message to baptism. That this salvation of the world, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said, is intrinsically tied to his baptism. So he does it out of obedience to reflect this, this, this grace to come. But something else happens here. Let's look at the scene, right? So it says immediately, you know, basically goes off and, you know, <clears throat> and then he says the heavens you know, sort of are torn open. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if we look at the scene, we see Jesus, who's, <clears throat> he comes from Nazareth, which is sort of a, a pretty unremarkable village you know, in, in, in Israel. It's, you know, it wasn't really sort of you know, a major sort of place or anything that people would recognise as sort of this backward town in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> And Galilee, in Galilee, was you know, sort of an unspiritual region. It uh, wasn't sort of really the Bible God of the time, if you like. And he comes to Jordan, which you know, basically is you know, sort of you know, a place of you know, really kind of unremarkable. And in fact, if you look at some of the early, uh, early writers, you know, even Jewish writers, it wasn't sort of the, the cleanest or nicest place. But then something happens as he goes into the water and comes out. And, and the description here in Mark, it's unique to Mark that you don't find in any of the other Gospels. So it says that the heavens parted, and the word that's used here is the word shizo, which basically means to tear apart. So God basically tears heaven apart. The only time that this word is used is after Jesus died, and it says the temple is shizo, sorry, the, the, the curtain of the temple is torn apart, literally torn from top to bottom. It's the same word that's used. And so we get this picture of Christ that as he comes out of the water, God the Father tears heaven in two. It's not just this nice parting of clouds that we see. Somehow heaven is rendered asunder and this thundering voice comes down. This is my son in whom I am more pleased. And yeah, this fulfills Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 64.1 and Isaiah 42.1. But then we see the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And this 
sort of reference of, you know, like a dove, it's not the same, the spirit is a dove, it's not a natural dove, it's just, you know, you look at it the way a dove lands, it lands softly, so the spirit isn't just, so as the heaven is torn apart, it's not like the Holy Spirit comes in, like this massive lightning strike of, you know, some sort of, you know, superpower or something like that, it was this gentle sort of coming upon him, you know. And, um, <clears throat> and John describes it in John the Baptist, he says, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending uh, from heaven like a dove and ra- remained upon him, and this is really important, it remained upon him. And John the Baptist gives another description of what he saw in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, verses 34 to 36. He's speaking here to his disciples, right, of who Jesus is. And he says to them, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And notice this, right? John the Baptist acknowledges the Spirit descending on Jesus, but he says it was given to him without measure. You see, you compare what Jesus received at his baptism, the Holy Spirit without measure, to what's given to us. We get the same Holy Spirit, but you and I get the Holy Spirit with measure. In fact, look with me in Romans 12, 3. For I say, through grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, Jesus received the Holy Spirit without measure. We get it with measure. There's a fundamental difference. But then we go on and we see that Jesus goes off and he's performing all these miracles and doing all this stuff in and throughout his ministry. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't like it, right? And they start challenging Jesus and they're trying to undermine him. And then it gets to a point where things come to a head in Mark chapter 11, right? And they say to him, well, you're doing all of this and you're proclaiming all these things. You're forgiving sins and you're doing this stuff. And whose authority, by whose authority do you do this? Let's read the account in Mark chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? They're trying to get you know, the, the argument from authority, right? I'm sure, you guys, I'm sure you guys have heard this before. And watch how Jesus responds. Verse 29, And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one question and answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And as the account goes on, he says that they were troubled. If they, if they try to say it was from, from, you know, from earth, that the, the people will rebel against them. If they say it's from heaven, they're acknowledging his authority. What's he talking about? He's talking about when he came up from the baptism of John, the heaven was torn in two, the Holy Spirit came upon him without measure. That was the proclamation of Jesus Christ as King. Jesus was baptized as a reflection of the grace that's given. But he was baptized to declare him, to proclaim him as King of Israel. It's that same evangel, that same gospel that Mark is trying to portray to a Roman audience. It's why he goes straight into, says in the beginning, the gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ, and he goes into John the Baptist, and it talks about his baptism. Why? Because the baptism of Jesus Christ was the proclamation of Jesus Christ as king. In fact, Jesus goes back, it's what empowered him and gave him authority to do what he did. It's why it's only after that time that he begins his ministry. 
You see, friends, when we, when we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we see the work it had and the impact it had on the life of Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, that the gospel is so much more than just giving a message out to people for salvation. It is that. Absolutely, it is that. But it's so much more. It's an understanding of me as a child of God, that God is my King, my Lord, my Saviour. He is sovereign over all. And that sovereignty can change who I am. Can change me from someone who flees from conflict, from trouble. is too, too shy and too afraid to confront people. To give an apologetic of what we believe to be true to someone who becomes the crutch of Paul the Apostle. Friends, don't misunderstand and don't diminish the gospel of Christ in your life. And the gospel of Mark, just in the opening chapter, tries to portray that to a lost and dying world, and not just to the lost, but to those who are saved. And I pray that we might see the power of the gospel of Christ, not just unto salvation, but unto sanctification. It's power and grace unto believers to change us and to mould us into the image of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the, the truth in your gospel, Lord, and your good news, Father, and your great news that you give to us. That is not just the good news and great news to a lost people, Father, to those that don't know you. But Father, it's good and great news, Father, to 